What's up? Now Nostalgia Pod coming at you. I am Patrick Sheehan with my co-host Dave Martinson. We are going to be bringing you your weekly look at what's going on in pop culture. Dave, before we jump into a packed show talking about San Diego Comic-Con, Tyler the Creator, and Dunkirk... Give me your thoughts on this week's Game of Thrones. I don't know how you can't be high on it. We had lots of great character moments, whether it's people meeting for the first time, like Varys and Daenerys, or that Hot Pie and Arya reunion. <clears throat> and we got to see some people die yeah, for so I thought it was uh, pretty good all around. They're not wasting any scenes. They're not wasting lines of dialogue. Time is moving quickly. The ravens are really fast now. So I thought it was good. You're on fucking shit up for sure. Pretty awesome. We don't need to yeah, s- eyeliner and all. Yeah, dude, uh, that, that eyeliner is still a weird choice, but we don't need to spend a lot of time on Game of Thrones. We got a lot to get to. Tweet us your thoughts on Game of Thrones Stay at plugged. Nostalgia Pod if you have them hot takes. This week, San Diego Com- or this past weekend, San Diego Comic Con went down. Always a lot of news. Maybe some of the most intriguing though was uh, Noah Hawley will be producing a movie based on Doctor Doom. So, Dave, Noah Hawley, I know that you're a big fan. Yeah. What do you think about this move? Yeah, not just producing, he's directing as well. It's interesting because we know Noah Hawley from his excellent work on Fargo and Legion, but as far as I know, he's never done any feature films of any substance, so this is a big step up. Obviously, he's staying in the Fox family, going from Le- continuing Legion, then doing this movie. Uh, I think this really speaks to Fox's drive to keep going forward. But Doctor Doom is a Fantastic Four villain, and Fantastic Four for 2015 with Josh Trank was really bad. So. Are they going to make a sequel to that and just try and make it a lot better? Are they going to redo Fantastic Four again? Because I don't know how you're going to do Doctor Doom without a good Fantastic Four. So we'll see about that, but it is interesting. But good for Noah Hawley. I think he can do it. DC seems to be making some interesting choices. They announced that The Flash's first movie will be based on a comic book arc called Flashpoint, where a lot of the big heroes in the Justice League, such as Batman, have alternate timelines. Now... In Batman's timeline, his father watches his wife and son get killed, and he survives. So his father becomes Batman. So, Mm -hmm. what's going to happen if if that's the way the Batman movie goes? Does that mean Ben Affleck's out? I don't think that's the way it'll go for Batman, but there are reports that they're trying to usher usher Batman out, uh, Ben Affleck out as Batman. He'll have his third go-around with Justice League this fall. That's That's in reshoots right now. And then the Batman with Matt Reeves, the solo Batman movie, will be coming as well. But after that, perhaps Flashpoint ushers in a new younger lead because Ben Affleck's got like 15 years on most of the other Justice League leads. They're all like in the early 30s, you know, Henry Cavill and Gal Gadot, Ezra Miller, all those people, Jason Momoa. So, you know, it'll be interesting. I, I think they're just trying to get all their actors on a the similar timeline, I guess, for contracts. I don't know, because... You know, I, I'm not sure if Affleck wants to do a Downey and just hang around for 10 years doing the role a lot. You know, it's tough to say. He was very enthusiastic about the role at San Diego Comic-Con, never really said anything other than that. But I can see DC's, you know, angle if that is the way they want to go. And Flashpoint is an organic way to usher him out if that's how they want to go about it. You know, it's interesting because I, I, I think Affleck actually has been a pretty decent Batman so far. I mean, I don't think he's Christian Bale level, which who I thought was awesome. But he's been pretty good. And it, I can't really imagine a young Batman. It's hard because Batman is so brooding and so beaten down and worn down from 
hardships of life. Don't think young, just think younger, like in their 30s, like Henry Cavill and Gal Gadot. I think, you know, they're not going to have a Tom Holland age Batman. Don't, not, no way, but I think just <laughs> Affleck yeah, might man, be a little like, too old. I don't you know. mean like it's not going to be the emo kid in school, like walking through the halls <laughs> with a, a upbeat Spider-Man and they're going to be like rivaling each other. Yo, his parents died. Why is he so weird? <laughs> Yeah, it, no. it'll be interesting. I mean, uh, uh, there's there's been speculation maybe Jeffrey Dean Morgan would take it over, but like he's like you said, it he's would go older, he's old. So uh, I, I don't know. I couldn't even imagine who out there right now could be Batman. Yeah, this this all could be uh, hearsay hearsay anyway. So it's just the report that we're going off of. But there's some more. Uh, it'll be a year, a ways some out. More interesting news. So Captain Marvel coming out 2019. It's gonna be based in the 90s. Brie Larson. We're a big fan of her on Nostalgia Pod leading but she's gonna have a co-lead samuel l jackson will it be him yeah fury i think the cool thing about it is the movie's taking place in the 1990s which would make it the earliest mcu movie in terms of you know when it's taking place obviously there were some flashbacks about like you know tony stark's dad and uh and ant-man stuff but this would be like the earliest you know existing mcu film so that means a younger nick fury probably with both of his eyes and i think this is cool because captain marvel is a character that you know, the average person knows fucking nothing about, right? But Spider-Man Homecoming showed us how awesome duo movies are in the MCU. Thor Ragnarok probably will continue that trend. So I like this idea of two people, especially someone like uh, like Nick Fury, who hasn't really gotten much of a chance to shine. Scarlett Johansson was kind of like a co-lead in Winter Soldier. So I think this is a cool idea. What do you think? Well, Dave, not, uh, I don't mean to uh, stop on your point, but wouldn't uh, Captain America, the first one, be the latest or the earliest mcu movie oh yeah you're right that's in the fucking uh 1940s but no i i think it's a good move it's interesting because i never really thought i would want to see a nick fury background movie but i could i I think i could dig getting a little bit of background on him and learn a little bit more i kind of just like samuel jackson all the time just let let him do what he does and it'll it'll probably be enjoyable i'm way more interested to see what, what brie larson does with the part to be honest but I mean, Nick Fury with two eyes, how could you pass that up, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. That, that'll that be the second to last uh, Phase 3 film right before the final Avengers Infinity film. So, But yeah, two years, uh, it's almost two years away still. So. Yeah, we, we, got, we got time to talk about that. Something we, we don't have a ton of time to talk about, or at least it, it, it'll be coming out sooner than that, Rocco's Modern Life and Hey Arnold. Having, yeah. Having like... N- what two-hour movies made specials i believe they're being specials, called uh, right. was it hey arnold the jungle movie and rocko's modern life static cling yeah static. Uh, there's little there's little teasers for both of them the hey arnold teaser is about it's like every character in the show hanging out doing like a arnold like highlight reel video that they made for some like contest stoop kid and then rocko's yeah, shout out Stoop Kid. Now he sits on all the stoops. <laughs> and then Rocco's Modern Life, which I think was way funnier, was uh, them being like, oh, wait, we're not in the 90s anymore. And then just making fun of all these, you know, modern things like, uh, you know, smartphones and devices for everything and yada yada. Uh, but what do, you, what do you think about the fact that these two specials exist, this blatant 90s nostalgia play? I mean, I thought the 80s nostalgia is kind of what we were going at still. So this seems a little early, but... We're really, we're really hitting the Nickelodeon cartoon nostalgia now. I mean, that makes me feel old. Dude, yeah, it's crazy because I was reading the article. I forgot which website I was reading about this on, and they were talking about how it's to celebrate Nicktoon's 25-year anniversary. And I was like, holy mm-hmm. shit, like 25 sure years? 
And uh, <laughs> it's kind of crazy because uh, I was like, wow, all these movies came out early 90s and it, it has been 25 years. And it makes sense because I think a lot of people around our age, you know, they, they reminisce about these shows they used to watch. If you're ever going to get people to come back in and buy back into Nick, it's going to be because they're gonna, you're going to buy into their nostalgia and as they start to have kids, they're going to be like, oh yeah, I used to watch Nick all the time, let's watch it again. So it makes sense because they're hitting a demographic that was huge for them and helped them grow as a network, and they're getting them right before they start to build families of their own. So I think it makes sense for them as a station in general. They also have SpongeBob, which is still going. So Yeah, I, I guess that, that is a good point too because, I mean, initially I was like, oh, well, I mean, they don't have to compete with anyone. It's them and Cartoon Network. Like, those are the cartoon channels. Kids watch those channels. But they have to compete with YouTube. They have to get kids to actually watch their shows and not just entertain themselves elsewhere. So, yeah, I guess that is a good point to try and get the parents in. It's uh, crazy. That makes a lot of sense. Like, YouTube, I was talking with my, my sister who has a four-year-old boy, and he all he does is watch YouTube. And it's crazy because, like, I couldn't imagine growing up and, like, just going on YouTube and surfing around like, all day. But instead of watching TV, that's what he does. It's... They have a, does he, does he have like subscriptions? Does he have people specifically files, or does he just kind of like search for shit and dick around as much as he can search? But like, does he look at like recommend like does he get recommendations, or does he have like people he goes back to? It's amazing. So like, as long as there's things on the side for him to press, he'll watch like a minute of a video, then press the, next, the one of the videos on the side. So you need to full screen it. But if he would do that for hours, just watching a different video every like two three minutes just because there's always something else on the side you can choose from it's it's insane like how great of a product youtube is for like young kids now. <laughs> yeah one of the big things that comes out of san diego comic-con is trailers usually and there were a lot of them i think there was like 15 16 there's there's always a ton yeah that, that's that's the major point of sdcc is just uh being big press and part of that showing a trailer uh, in front of these huge crowds that just eat it up. So we picked out five that we thought might be interesting to talk about. Let's just do this one quick. Stranger Things. Yeah, I mean, it's exciting. Comes up, comes back October 27th, a little earlier than Halloween, the initial date that was uh, thrown out there. Kids a little older, doing more 80s things. But it's, it's crazy that this show, which came out of nowhere, is now a Comic-Con uh, force yeah. and has such a legion of fans, Absolutely. you know? It was awesome that they got Thriller in there. Like, what a fucking huge song yeah. to have for the trailer and it gave the perfect Netflix contract. paying for them licensing fees baby yeah for real <laughs> I mean it seemed to fit perfectly also uh, yeah. to get what, what was it Will was he the one that was in the the other world the dark world yeah I think so Yeah. he seems like he's gonna the, get, yeah, that guy. Whatever get a chance to, to shine so that, that's kind of exciting to see them pull people in and yeah he's, Rudy, he just went away for almost the whole whole show right. <laughs> and, and they, they had Rudy running down right. the hallway in scrubs which looked interesting so there's a, there's a lot of fun stuff to get excited about so a movie I didn't I hadn't really heard about but I'm, I'm pretty stoked for now ready player one Spielberg film I brought it up on the pod a few times you just weren't listening you you might have told me about it but it, it looks pretty pretty dope mm-hmm. the only thing I, I have to question and it's obviously a little bit early on it, but I had the same thought with Westworld. Is what are the stakes? If it's happening with inside a video game, do I really care about it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, that's a fair criticism. Uh, the, thing that, the thing that interests me about Ready Player One is that it's a relatively uh, recent book. I believe it's a 2011 book, and it was a big bestseller, really popular. But you know how like book people get where they always have to tell you like something that t- so, tell you something a different way because you know they read the book or you know they think about things differently. All the book people came out in force last uh, over the weekend. They're like, yeah, well, Ready Player One uh, is not written really well, even though it's really popular. Therefore, you shouldn't be excited about the trailer. Like, 
I don't know. That kind of rubbed me the wrong way. But it's a movie about like the real like nostalgia that's happened in the world. Like that's why you see in the trailer the Iron Giant, the DeLorean, Freddy Krueger. But what's missing from this is all of Steven Spielberg's contributions to the 80s, like E.T. and you know everything else. And he didn't want to include his own contributions because he's making the movie, which is totally respectable. So I'm just interested to see how the movie actually works because it's not going to be a direct adaptation. It's got it's got a good cast. It's got a uh, Ty Sheridan who was a uh, young Cyclops, Cyclops in uh, X Men Apocalypse, and Ben Mendelsohn's in it, our guy, as well as a few others. So uh, that comes out next year, I believe, in February. Yeah, you're right though. Your question about stakes is totally uh, valid, and I haven't read the book, so I can't really say it yet either. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think it's a little bit easier with the movie because, unlike a TV show where you're supposed to be investing the characters from week to week, if if you're not investing the movie, it's only 90 to what 120 minutes maybe. Mm-hmm. Also, some people were throwing out that the spectacle of Ready Player One, like what happens, might not be as like as of a, much of a spectacle now. Because when it was written in 2011, like, the whole concept of VR was still very much just a concept. And now, like, VR, people try VR, people work on VR every day. So what happens in the, the movie might not be as, like, mind-blowing as it was a few years ago when the story was first told. So we'll see how that plays out. Well, Westworld also had a trailer come out for season two. A lot of... Your favorite show. <laughs> Man, you know, honestly, my, my thoughts around the trailer, I'll just give them to you real quick. I... Sl- I just watched like a, the what, 90 second trailer and I was like, fuck this show still. I don't give a fuck about Westworld. Dude, that's my thing. So we had great discussions about the finale and towards the end of the show, right? I was still defending the uh, interesting aspects of the show, but we both agreed that season one was not like a great season of television. And I still feel that way even more because it has so many hardcore fans. And I'm like, no, 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 fuck this. This does not deserve this level of fandom because it was so hastily constructed as the first season uh, concluded. But the second season, which is actually already in production, a little earlier than we thought, even though it doesn't come out till next year, uh, looks like they're definitely uh, doubling down on the robot uprising. And we're definitely getting into like the samurai, like Asian parallel world. So I think it'll be a better show just because they'll have more time to work on it. But yeah, I, that, that was still kind of my reaction as well. It's just, no, 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 like, fuck all this fanfare. They have to earn it. Yeah, for real. And and the thing about it is, like, the stakes still don't really matter. Because in the show, or even in the trailer, you see... Uh, Jeffrey Wright. Jeffrey Wright riding in, like, a, a four-wheeler with, like, humans, I guess. But then you also see Dolores riding on a horse, like, shooting people. And it's like, okay, you're really going to have robot versus robot be the central heart of this show? Is that really going to be it? Because then mm. what are we really... What, why would we be invested in this at all? Yep. I don't give a fuck about Dolores or, uh, what was his name, Arnold? Fuck that shit. Who was James Marsden's character? He sucked, too. Uh, Teddy. Oh, yeah. So. James Marsden. <laughs> he, he, he's actually, did you watch, um, uh, it's not Seven Days in Hell, it's the Cycle de, de Pharmacy, the HBO special from Andy Samberg about the Tour de France. A Tour de Pharmacy. Tour de Pharmacy, yeah. Yeah, yeah, on HBO. He was great in that. I have to say, Marsden's really been winning me over. He's been... Because uh, he, he was uh, Superman in Smallville, right? Not Superman. Uh, he was somebody else. Superman was... That guy doesn't act anymore. Oh, no, no. He was uh, he was Cyclops in X-Men. But anyways, Marsden uh, was great in that. So he's, he's gaining a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of esteem in my book. But two more trailers we want to talk about. Both big superhero movies coming out. Justice League 
and Avengers Infinity War. I've only seen the Avengers Infinity War from like a really shitty like camera phone that secretly recorded it. Looks pretty awesome. Josh swollen as Thanos. Yeah, right. So Infinity War trailer wasn't officially revealed yet to anyone besides who was in that crowd. So that's I watched the same uh, phone recording video as well. It's it gets reposted, taken down. People have downloaded, so it gets reposted. So that's how you have to watch it. Yeah, I mean we only see the spectacle aspect of it. So and the meaning of Thor and the Guardians, so, you know, tough to really judge anything. But yeah, it looks uh, it's like it's going to be really crazy. Definitely. And Justice League, they had a, what, a four-minute trailer? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it was called a trailer, it was called like a sneak peek, but yeah, it was a bunch of chunks of footage. But my takeaway is, and a lot of people are saying this, not original take, the way they talked about Superman in that trailer, obviously he's not really in it, he's going to be coming back, obviously, even fucking dead. But the way they talk about Superman, it's almost like there's a separate Superman character that we haven't seen yet, like we missed a movie just because that's not the Superman that they developed in Man of Steel and BVS. So, hey, whether they want to pretend that's Superman we got and then use that kind of Superman from here on out, I guess that's not a bad idea, but it's just kind of funny that you know, it's being presented as that's the Superman that we've gotten so far. So Yeah, definitely, I, I agree with you know, that. Maybe, maybe they know they, like, they know they fucked up and they got to fix it, so, you know, whatever. At least they're trying. Shout out Jason Momoa, though. He seems to be having a great time with this, and I'm glad that he's finally getting like a, a huge role to step out and introduce himself to the world. I mean, Game of Thrones is huge, but he's only in the first season, which he died pretty quick. Yeah. And also, if he makes Aquaman cool, he deserves a fuck ton of credit. Let's not forget. Yeah, definitely. Well, why don't we jump to some of these albums before we talk about Dunkirk, though? Let's start with Foster the People. Sacred Hearts Club, album number three. If we have to. Foster the People, if you've been to a festival in the last two or three years, you've probably seen them about six times. They'll be at the Meadows and... this fall. <laughs> but they'll finally be playing new music. Sacred Hearts Club came out, and it's okay. Yeah, I, not great. I don't think it's... Yeah, it, it's it's not... Apparently the fan reception is not that terrible, which is very interesting to me, because it's a, definitely a departure from their previous sounds as just a straight-up, like, you know, indie, indie pop band. This basically is going full pop, uh, really relinquishing any rock elements. But if the fans are liking that, I'm kind of happy for them, because you know how rock fans are where we want the old stuff but yeah i think the album is pretty lackluster it sounds fine but i think i think it definitely peaks in the beginning and then drops down i really like sit next to me though just as like a single uh, that, i think yeah, that song's really catchy single. but other than that i mean i feel like there isn't a whole lot to say but yeah i want to shout out two songs specifically i love my friends was when i decided i was out on the album <laughs> like I, I did not want to listen anymore but i was like you know i'm just gonna jump around i jumped to a song called loyal like sid and nancy Yo, what the fuck is this shit? <laughs> <laughs> this is, like, uh, that song, not only what it was talking about, but just the way it was constructed, I was like, this is whack, whack song making. Foster the yeah. People, you know, for a band that came out with such a strong first album, had, they're really suffering to really recapture what that album, how, why that album was so popular. And they're, they're definitely trying to mature as a band, but they still put in these, like, little bits where, like, you hear, like, bits of laughter, like, really random parts, and it's like, what, what does this effect actually do for your song? Yeah, and like you were saying, I think lyrically it was not anything to write home about, so we'll see how the fan reception continues to linger, but uh, critically it's been pretty mixed. Yeah, and if you want to hear the album, just go to a festival anytime in the next five years, and you'll probably hear the same shit. In the probably. Pumped up kick. What about Tyler, the creator, though? Flower Boy. Yeah. What's, what's yeah. Yes, that's correct. Goblin Wolf 
Cherry Bomb, and now Flower Boy. I haven't listened to one of his albums since Goblin Wolf. So, yeah, Wolf was uh, 2012, I believe. Yeah, I think that was the last one, so it was like... Wolf, Wolf's yeah, a good record. What did you think of this one? It sounded different from Goblin and Wolf. Oh, no, I, I, absolutely. I think that that's the main takeaway. Todd, the creator, has, he's 26 years old, but he burst on the scene with Bastard, his debut mixtape. With you know when he was when Odd Future was at their peak when he was like fucking like 18, Tyler Creator has matured lyrically. It's a lot deeper, a lot more meaningful. I think he's the feelings of loneliness that he expresses throughout the uh, album as he gets very personal is definitely a big step up. Also uh, sonically, it's not a grading album. His production and his uh, ear for production has really evolved. Uh, he's always worn his Pharrell influence on his sleeve, and you can really hear the Pharrell production throughout this project and obviously the you know the the big headline is you know Tyler Creator you know coming out of the closet or coming to terms with his sexuality and that is a part of the lyrics but in general I just think the the how personable the album is and how mature the listen uh is when you when you go about it I think is the major takeaway for me so I'm yeah I'm really happy with it. I think Boredom is probably the best song, and then Hootap Boys a nice banger as well with Rocky. Yeah, Boredom stood out to me. Garden Shed also yep. caught my ear just listening passively, but I think the the jazz elements of this album reminded me a lot of Kendrick in a way, like how he went from very like classic rapper beats on like Good Kid, Mad City, and then when he went to Pimp a Butterfly, he really seemed to elevate. Uh, yeah, bring in Thundercat and guys like uh, that. Yeah, Tyler definitely seems to be maturing as creative, as an artist. And I really like the direction he's decided to go just in terms of making mm-hmm. music. I, I never thought I would see this side of Tyler, the creator, honestly. I, I mean, he always presents it just like a goofball, really crazy, kind of fucked up person, which I think was mostly just a, a, a persona. But he's also very thoughtful, which I think is a, a really beautiful part of yeah, exactly, and I think that's that's what's so great about Flower Boy is that we finally know that there is more to Tyler the Creator than just kind of being uh, aggressive towards detractors and you know not being afraid to curse. He actually does have something more to say, and Tyler Creator's always been really respected in the hip hop community. I think people have known how like you know how woke he is and how like, artistic he is. We haven't really gotten that body of work as the public yet, so we still have our, we still had our right to uh, question it. But yeah, this album really shows that there's a lot more to Tyler and his little, nice little Frank Ocean contributions throughout this album. Like I said Rocky, uh, Jane Smith actually isn't that bad on this. Weezy. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Uh, well, Smuckers with Kanye and Lil Wayne from Cherry Bomb was one of Tyler's best songs, so uh, he has the Lil Wayne connection already. But yeah. When are we gonna get a Weezy album? That was. We got Collie Grove last year with Two Chains. That was technically a, a, a dual album, but it was only credited to Two Chains because of the Birdman, you know, Young Money uh, records thing with Little Wayne. The Carter Five is can't be released or whatever. So I don't know if we're getting Little Wayne album, but I also don't really care. I'm not really high on Little Wayne these days. I think we're both high on. Dylan, Del Rey. Christopher Nolan's. <laughs> Yeah, right. I was looking at it today, and I was like, eh, maybe I'll give it a listen. And then I was like, fuck Lana Del Rey. Although, I, I hear it's pretty good. I've heard that, well, I did did some reading. Lana Del Rey finally got political, took a side, I guess. She used to be very apolitical, like, would not call herself a feminist, things, along, things of that ilk. So, Lana has a new mode of thinking on this album, and I'll leave it at that. Not my cup of tea, not yours either. No, definitely not. But Dunkirk... Definitely was my cup of tea, even if it was a oh yes anxiety-producing cup of tea. Very salty tea. <laughs>
Christopher Nolan's was this his eighth? Insomnia, following, Memento, Prestige, Inception Interstellar, Night, Inception, and the Three Dark Knight. Nine? Ten? Yeah. ten? Dunker? Yeah, ten? I think it's number nine. Yeah, nine, ten, whatever. A prolific director, and he's only 46, which I think is really cool. He's done a lot of good shit for a guy under 50. Yeah, I mean, to be 46 and be pumping out blockbusters every two years and, and not only blockbusters but movies that are well respected and studied is pretty amazing mm-hmm. and i think dunkirk will be specially studied because of its filmmaking technique no i agree yeah uh dunkirk was a masterpiece i think in terms of filmmaking i mean there's definitely some things that you can knock the film for and we'll, we'll get to those but i guess what was your like what was your experience watching it because i think yeah, he filmed this like Quentin Tarantino on what, a 76 millimeter. 70 millimeter. Film and said that you should see it in IMAX to get the full experience. Is that how you viewed the film? I almost did. I almost saw it 70 millimeter. I, I ended up going to a different showing, but I think it's definitely a theater movie in general. People say it's definitely worth checking out in 70 millimeter, just because of that's the way it was shot and it does make the the picture even better. Uh, in terms of like the framing and stuff, types of you know the cameras he used to put it bluntly, uh, and also like, like Hateful Eight was in 70 millimeter, but that movie doesn't have like huge set pieces, so it wouldn't stand out as much as Dunkirk would if you saw it in that format. But definitely needs to be a theater movie for you to get the full appreciation, I'd say. Yeah, I would agree. You know, you think about a film like like Inception, I think you can still enjoy it even though it's definitely better in the theater. This is a film that if you saw it the first time just at your at your house, I can't imagine you really get the effect that that you get. In First thing I really liked about it, only 106 minutes. Yeah, I think a big part of that is that it's relatively straightforward f- film, you know? But yeah, it's shorter. It's not... I, what was it? Uh, was Interstellar was over two and a half hours. Very, very long. But Dunkirk, yeah, straight to the point. Uh, didn't waste much time. No, definitely not. I, I guess maybe the, the thing I wanted to ask you was... There, there were a lot of parts about this movie, like a lot of moments that stick with me. What would you say is, is the part that probably comes to mind when you think about this movie the most? See, I mean, yeah, right, there's a lot of moments. I think the uh, very first scene where the small group of English soldiers are walking, seeing the German uh, leaflets telling them they're going to die if they don't surrender as they're walking through the uh, abandoned town of Dunkirk, and then uh, they get most of them get gunned down, our lead survives, and then the French almost shoot him. Like, I, that whole scene was, I thought, was incredible. And, I mean, you can think about really any, almost any of the scenes, and no one builds the tension and keeps the tension. So when you're watching it, your heart's racing. Yes. And there's something to be said about that, because we know how this story ends. We know that it's successful, yet he still is able to build so much suspense out of it. Yeah, I totally agree. The, the, the tension part, I think, is key. And obviously... Christopher Nolan relies on Hans Zimmer a lot in it, uh, I think almost every movie mm-hmm. to help him create the, the feeling he wants but throughout this whole movie it was almost like you were actually in the scene like there, there was a scene the scene that sticks out to me the most is when um, the second pilot or the pilot that's mm. not Tom Hardy yeah. I forgot what his name is he crashes and he's trying to get out and he's slowly sinking and he's just like punching that window and like the whole scene the music just building 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 and you're just like oh like I literally like was like rocking mm-hmm. in my seat just like clenching my fist like shit like pretty insane how, how they did that they had some very well put together music with with the scenes for sure if you had to pick a one one perform uh, acting performance who would you who would you choose i think mark rylance is a shoe-in for a best supporting yeah. actor nomination easily he has that one moment where he raises his voice on the boat and i'm like oh that's his real that's what they'll show at the oscars write it down 
<laughs> yep, there's no running from this, you son. Can't, the movie isn't as good without him, let's put it that way. Like his, What his presence brings to the movie, I think, was the most important aspect. We all like Tom Hardy, but I think any good actor could have been that pilot and done just fine. Yeah, definitely. I, I would definitely agree Riley is, is the MVP for me. But Fionn Whitehead, mm-hmm. man... He was, he was good, yeah. Uh, I think all, all the uh, you know young British dudes were pretty good. Uh, even Harry, Harry Styles really impressed me. I mean, they say he er, earned the role. He, you know, no one picked him out because he tried out and was the best choice uh, in his eyes. So, but yeah, I was really surprised. Like Harry almost had like a little range, like towards the end where he gets all fired up. I was pretty surprised. But yeah, Whitehead and does a lot for a character that doesn't speak a whole lot. There's not a lot of dialogue in this movie in general. No. Yeah, and, and that's actually one of the knocks on the movie, is that there's not a lot of character development in the movie. But I think that that actually makes sense for the kind of movie that Nolan was trying to make. It wasn't necessarily about one person, it was about overall, like these 400 people on a beach, and how the fuck they're going to get them. Yeah, exactly. 400,000 British guys hoping they don't get bombed to death. I mean, I, I don't think we need to spend a whole lot of time with any one person. It's more about just the visceral experience and the sheer terror everyone's feeling. Yeah. You know, one of one of the performances that I think probably gets a lot of play and, and deservedly so is Brandon. Just on that dock the whole time, on that pier. <laughs> the way he says, it looks like home. <laughs> when he's looking up the binoculars and all those, like, civilian mm-hmm. boats with a little tear coming yeah. in his eye. Like, o- only Brandon can really, pr- like, give give that mm-hmm. line. So, wait, I, I guess I want to ask, do you think it's, it's Nolan's best movie? So, I... Good question. A, a lot of sites were putting it as his best or almost his best. I think for the average viewer and probably average critic as a result, this is one of his more accessible movies because it's so straightforward and there and because it's a filmmaking uh, masterpiece as we've been getting at with the sound direction and the shooting and you know all the technical aspects. There's so much to like about it, and it's also not like so bogged down in its themes in its grand ideas like an Inception or an Interstellar is. That being said, I still like Inception more. Critics of Nolan call his fanboys like Nolanoids because they just explain like, "Oh, you gotta, you gotta get good, man. It's not that hard to understand. It's just, just be, you know, just follow along." I don't think that Nolan's movies have ever been like super hard to follow per se. That being said, I can totally understand if you think Dunkirk is his best movie, and a big part of that would be because it's. I guess the simplest to follow. If that makes sense. What do you feel about that? How do you how do you feel how how do you feel like the confusing aspects of it factor into your weighing of all his various movies? What do you think? Well, you know it's interesting because uh, it was funny. I, I saw the movie with a couple of our friends, a uh, friend of the pod, Sean McKenna, friend of the pod, Grady McBride, mm. not friend of the pod. Bleep that name Bleep out. Bleep that out. He's not even a maester. And at the <laughs> and at the end of the uh, the movie, I was asking people thought, and was like, well, you know. I, I didn't really understand why why Tom Hardy was on that boat and then he was in the plane. And I was like, "What are you talking what about?" And he was like, well, "Wasn't he the guy that was on, like wasn't that that's the alternate timelines?" And he didn't really what understand the, like, the two different timelines. Cillian Murphy like, does not look no, like Tom Hardy. Oh my god, I, that is dude, a, the I Scarecrow know, doesn't look like Bane, bro. <laughs> Come on. Oh, that pisses me off. I know. I know. I was trying to explain it. I was like, I think you missed. Like, I, I don't even know if you know what happened in the movie then because their timelines are so different. But also, I think. The critiques of the timelines are way overblown, in my opinion. It's like, oh, one, was it one week, one day, one hour? It's all pretty straightforward. Yeah. Just follow the event, the overall event. Like, I don't see what's so confusing right. about it. He's flying around protecting the ships. He's a plane. He has limited gas. 
easy to understand. That's one fucking hour. You're sailing from across the English Channel. Easy to understand. It's about a fucking day. 400,000 guys getting evacuated. Easy to understand. It's about a week. Like, I don't understand what was so hard to follow about that. That's not me being a nolanoid. That's just me saying that it's not hard to follow a fucking current event on screen. Like, it, it wasn't confusing. No, I, I agree. And especially because the way that they cut the scene was they were on the boat with Mark Rylance. And he, he was explaining shell shock and how he's never going to be the same man. And then it cuts mm-hmm. to Cillian Murphy in the next scene where that... that big uh, destroyer yeah. explodes and he's towing right. those guys back in the water. So you pretty much see exactly how he got to the point he was at. Yeah. So I thought it was, the timeline part made a yeah. lot of sense. It exactly. Oh, it was a few days ago. How oh. do you think he got on Mark Rylance's boat? He was gunned down. Now you see how. Like, again, it's just watch the movie right. in order and it makes sense. Exactly. Um, but in terms of other Nolan movies, I, yeah, I think that this is definitely in my top, probably top Interesting. three. You know, I, I guess maybe t- maybe number four because I really ride for Prestige, Inception, and Dark Knight, even though I know it has problems near, near the end. It's hard to write mo- any any of his like stud movies out, you know, and that's what that's with right. giving like Memento like sixth place. It, it's a tough bar to crack. <laughs> that's a great point. Yeah, Memento's such, such a great movie. Guy Pierce, shout out him. I mean, I would I would say you know shout out uh, Bill Simmons. He always talks about movies rewatchability, but I actually think this really matters for Nolan. How is no memento still is good for you once you understand it and you've seen the end so you know what happens and like now it all makes sense when you watch it i don't know how rewatchable memento is i've only seen it a few times his other movie prestige a lot of twists in that uh still like still really good inception same thing like he has a lot of twists in his movies once you see the twist you still like the movie as much when you rewatch it dunkirk because of its lack of twists is probably quite rewatchable if you want to sit through a stressful experience again. So I think that also can factor into how people uh, rank their Nolan films. Yeah, I agree, but I mean, in terms of like having fun at a film, I wouldn't say that this was actually a fun experience, but it was it was a moving one mm-hmm. because I I really would like kind of left being like, yeah, war fucking sucks. And, like, mm. I know that that's like the most generic, basic observation you can make, but a lot of war movies, you, you come out of it and you're kind of like, oh, like, that guy was so heroic, or that was so such a brave thing he did, or so cool. Like you, you watch, uh, you watch American Sniper, and you come away being like, "Wow, Chris Kyle, that shot he made, that was over a mile, like amazing." In this, I was just like, "Yo, some of those guys were heroic, and they fucking bit the dust." Yeah. Some of them did the most cowardly thing ever, and they survived. And it's like you leave pretty much just being like, "That was just not a fun experience," but it was. That's why it was so good. Yeah, it's a movie about a military disaster. It's a movie about a defeat, you know? Talk about an un-American war movie. Just going uh, macro for a second, she did like that this didn't have a lot of like, the war movie cliches that you see a lot, like the uh, guy taking out the picture of a loved one right before he's about to die, or uh, the big speech about what they're fighting for, or you also didn't get the uh, like strategy meeting, what's going on. It, losing a lot of the war film cliches, which I think was nice, because yeah, like, no one's not out there making a war movie per se. He's just making a really visceral story that happens to be taking place in a war. Also, shout out Dunkirk beating all the box office expectations. Fifty point five million in the middle of July. Tropes a lot of the classic American war movies, which I think is bad, you know, a great point. You know, one of the things I think it also does that a lot of Christopher Nolan movies fail to do is I thought the ending kind of hit home. I didn't really give a fuck about George, to be honest. Like, I felt bad, and it, it was very sad what was going on for him. He's a I hero. I was more about his friend than about George, actually. What did you think of the, the ending? Because a lot of Nolan movies, people say, have a lot of problems. So what was your take on the ending? 
Yeah, that's a good point because we know how the movie ends. So how is the movie actually going to end? Like the the story itself. And yeah, I think it kind of being like cheery and about how the English people treated everyone when they got back, I think was a nice point to follow. And also the brief bit of closure you get for Tom Hardy's uh, character, I thought was actually really strong. So yeah, overall, I thought it ended well and it, it didn't have any like huge narrative to finish off. So it was, probably was an easy movie to end compared to his other movies. Yeah, I agree. And I think using Churchill, a lot of people are kind of like, eh, I don't know if that was the right move. I think it actually fits what Nolan was trying to get across perfectly, that this was a battle that was fought basically by like teenage boys and, and young men. But mm-hmm. the people that, that saved them were the people who weren't actually soldiers. Like They made some of the biggest differences in this. And Churchill, basically in his speech, was talking about how the country as a whole carries mm-hmm. on, not just the army. So I, I thought it was a really great ending by Nolan, something that he, he sometimes doesn't always stick the landing, but this one definitely did. Also, I know that you tweeted this out, so if you follow Dave at Martin Swagger, go to his timeline and check out the link for the Inception piece that Chris Ryan wrote, because I thought that piece was phenomenal. One of the most interesting looks at Inception as a film that I've ever read. Definitely recommend it. Any last thoughts on Dunkirk? Anything that you would suggest to viewers? Uh, will you see this movie again? I, I won't see it in the theater again. I usually don't do that. But I think that it, it's it's not like other war movies. And I think that's partly because no one made it. And obviously no one always has a goal in mind when he sets out to make a movie. But I think it's it's a really important film. It's one of the most ex- the biggest openings for a World War II movie in probably almost 10 years. It beat out Glorious Bastards' debut from 09, so it's been a while. Uh, but yeah, great performances. It's short, really emotional, really great theater movie. So, I, again, as you've heard, we really don't have anything bad to say about it. Uh, yeah, I, would, I agree with everything you said. Definitely check it out in the theater. If you're having any reservations around the fence, just go. You won't regret seeing this thing on the big screen and with a good sound system. One last note I forgot to mention. So, Harry Styles factor. 60% of the audience was male, and 76% was over the age of 25. So, Harry Styles did not drive major movie-going tickets compared to the overall audience. Yes, yeah. Food for thought. Harry Styles, <laughs> he, he was he pleasantly surprised, though. Definitely, I think I think his solo his uh, solo career, or his move away from what One Direction is going pretty well. Agreed. So, uh, we'll be back next week. We got a lot of things to catch up on, a lot of music, maybe some TV. We'll definitely be talking Thrones, be talking Atomic Blonde. Anything I missed? I'll give my Valyrian hot takes. Man, I mean, if you want to hear some hot takes, Dave's definitely got some on Valyrian. I mean, I heard that it was pretty, pretty stunning, so I'm excited to hear your thoughts on it, Dave. But... In the meantime, tweet at the pod at NostalgiaPod. Go to SoundCloud.com slash NostalgiaPod. You can find links to our YouTube page, to Google Stitch. Is that a thing? Stitcher? Google Play? Google Play. There you go. Google Play <laughs> and Stitcher. Tune in. We're on all those things. But iTunes Review, SoundCloud, those are the Yeah, and check ones. out uh, Spotify. You can find our Best of the Year playlist, Nostalgia Best of 2017. We updated it with some Tyler and some Foster the People songs. I'm not going to give away which Foster the People songs on there, but we did talk about it, I'm pretty sure. And, uh, yeah, definitely tweet at, at Martin Swagger and at Sheeny World Peace. Give us your thoughts on the show or anything that we talked about or anything we haven't talked about and you want to hear us talk about. We love you. We appreciate you. And uh, go see Dunk. Peace out.